quoting from Psalm 46, verse 10, and it only used four words out of it. It said, Be still and know. Quite a message there that we need to be still, we need to be patient, and we need to know. Today, we are here on the Feast of Trumpets to be before God, to be quietly waiting for Him, and today we'll examine and review what will be and hopefully provide some insurance that we are there when it happens. Be turning to First Thessalonians 4, if you would. Now, I know you know where you think I'm going, but I'm not going to start where you think I am. But it is in First Thessalonians 4 that we will turn. <clears throat> he says some things very pertinent to this day on down toward the end of the chapter, but I want to begin at the beginning of the chapter to capture the entire context of what Paul is saying here. That, in part, to help ensure that we are there when the events that we normally simply read about begin to occur and that we want to be part of. So he says in chapter 4, verse 1, Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Emmanuel, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. So he begins by entreating, by beseeching, that we remember those things that we have learned and abound in them, and please God. Now, I could stop right there and go down to verse 16 where we usually go and tie them together, but let's tie it together more than that. We need to walk as we ought to walk, and we ought to please God. That helps ensure that we will be there when the resurrection occurs. For you know what commandments we gave you by the eternal Emmanuel. We're familiar. We know. We know the things he said. We know he said keep his commandments if we will enter into life. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. The commandments, the things he taught or what are used, if we will follow them, to sanctify us. That is, set us apart or set us aside for a special use. That you should abstain from fornication. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in the lust of concupiscence or lawlessness, even as the Gentiles which know not God. So he's saying that we need to be sexually clean on top of it, uh, and not only physically that way, but also spiritually clean in that way from the world. Both are very, very important. 
Let no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. So we are to be personally morally responsible, and then we are not to go beyond and defraud our brothers and our sisters in any manner. Because that the Eternal is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. So we are not to defraud in any way, and if we are defrauded, then God is the avenger who will take care of that. It isn't something that we need to concern ourselves with. For God has not called us to uncleanness, but unto holiness. We need to concentrate on being holy, walking as we should walk, thinking as we should think. And holiness then means having the mind and the attitude of God, not the attitude of carnality or of the world or of our own natures. He, therefore, that despises, despises not man but God, who has also given to us His Holy Spirit. So, God wants our minds to be clean and holy. We are not to be in a an attitude of despising others. God does not have an attitude of despite. He does not have a negative attitude of despising anyone. He wants all to come to repentance and be part of His kingdom. So if we despise others, we are not thinking as God thinks. He's giving us some incredible advice here in leading up to talking about the first resurrection. Because we don't want to just know that it's coming. We want to be in it, be part of it. And that's, how, that's what he's telling us how to do here. But as touching brotherly love, you need not that I write to you. For you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. He says, I shouldn't even have to say that, but he does, (laughs) uh, because he knows that we always need more love for one another. And indeed, you do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia, but we beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more. So he says, I know you have love for one another, but it needs to be increasing day by day, week by week, and month by month. We need to be loving one another more, not despising one another, because that leads toward frustration, it leads toward division, it leads toward bad feelings. So we need to be going the other direction, loving instead of despising, day by day. And that you study to be quiet. Study means to think on, to pray over, to work at being quiet. And there's where the despite is put aside, because we don't say despiteful things, negative things about each other, but we grow in love toward another, and being quiet about things that we really shouldn't be talking about. It's none of our business. And he follows it up with that very statement. 
and to do your own business. Not somebody else's business. You work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Somebody else's business is none of your business. Do we get that? That's God's Word. And to work with your own hands as we commanded you. So mind your own business, do your own work, and study to be quiet about the affairs of others. That you may walk honestly toward them that are without, non-believers, not in the church, and that you may have lack of nothing. So, if we are not causing any despising, if we're being quiet and minding our own business, then we will come to have uh, honesty toward them that are without, and we will have lack of nothing because we're working. We're producing. Busy hands are quiet hands. Uh, you're, you're busy doing instead of sitting back yakking. That you may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that you may have lack of nothing. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. Well, then he gets into something about the future. He tells us what we need to be doing. Then he says, I won't have you ignorant concerning them which are dead that you sorrow not, even as others, which have no hope. Now, we mourn, we are sorrowful, we miss those who are dead, but we don't sorrow as the world sorrows, because the world doesn't understand what he's about to explain here. That hope is not lost. Hope is still ahead. So we don't live in the past, but we live in hope of the future. The world worries about the past. For if we believe that Emmanuel died and rose again, even so them also which are dead in Christ will God bring with him. They're going to come with him at some time in the future. They're not there with him now. We know that. They haven't... uh, gone to heaven or to hell, they're dead. They know nothing, as the Scripture clearly says. But they are going to be coming with him. I think we read yesterday in Jude 14 about how he will come with tens of thousands of his saints, 144,000 to be exact, as other Scriptures show us. So they will be coming with him. For this we say to you by the word of the Eternal, that we which are alive and remain to the coming of the Eternal shall not precede them which are asleep. So he he goes ahead and explains that those who are dead will come with him, but they got to wake up first. And then he explains when and how. For the Eternal Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Eternal in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Eternal. So he says, He will come, and those which are dead will rise to meet Him in the air and in the clouds, and then those who are uh, alive and remain that aren't dead yet 
will rise immediately thereafter to be with them. And will always be with him. Never separated from him again. Well, he's not coming onto the earth at that time, but he is going back to his Father's throne with those who will be with him and have his wedding and honeymoon and come back about a year later. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. We have a lot of friends and relatives uh, over the years in the church who have died. Many, many were called into God's church here at the end, and uh, thousands and thousands of them have died since the time they were called. And, of course, even Paul, thinking at the time he wrote this, that he would still be alive and remain, uh, is dead, and so was everyone that he wrote this to. But he wrote it for us at the end of the world, and some of us will be alive and remain when Christ returns. Because this generation will not die out, and we'll probably read that in a little bit, before he does return. So we should comfort each other with these words. This is a good review for us, to be what we ought to be so that we can be in that resurrection when Christ returns with the trumpet. Then he goes on and says, But of the times and the seasons, brethren... Now, he's mentioned the coming of Christ here. And he goes on to talk about the time that he will return. He says, Of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write to you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the eternal so comes as a thief in the night. Uh, you can go to Joel and other places... Uh, through the Scriptures, and find that that is the case. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. We know that Zephaniah 1 talks about a great crash financially that will come. It also talks a little later uh, in chapter 2 about a military destruction that is coming. And many, many scriptures back that up. But it's not talking to us here. It says when they say peace and safety, we've worked it all out, everything will be fine, then sudden destruction is coming. Now, are we to be ignorant of that time? Let's read on. Their destruction will come as travail upon a woman with child. And they shall not escape. A woman with child doesn't feel pain until the pain starts. And that's suddenly. Yet you're just going along. You know the time's getting close. But the birth pains or pains have not arrived yet. And then suddenly, there it is. The first one. Ooh! And you know it started. And then you can't escape. <laughs> it's coming. And once that starts, it's coming pretty quickly. You may get a few false alarms ahead of time. Sometimes they do. But when it really starts, it comes, and you're not going to get out of it. It's going to happen. They won't escape. 
But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. We are not to be in the position that the world is, because we know. And it won't come on us suddenly like that, but it will on the world. It should not overtake you as a thief. You are all the children of light. And the children of the day, we are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. The world does not have a clue. They're walking in darkness. It is going to, take, it is going to come on them like a thief in the darkness, in the night. But he says, not you. You're supposed to see it coming. You're supposed to be able to know when it is here. Because you walk in the light, not in darkness. So he says, don't sleep. It's daytime for us. It isn't darkness. We know. We understand. So be awake in a time of light. Don't watch... uh, um, we're not of the night. Let us watch and be sober, for they that sleep, sleep in the night. And they that be drunk, are drunken in the night. Most people who are drunks, drink in the evening and are drunk at night. They don't drink in the day. There are some who do, but in general, that's not the case. So what about us? Let us who are of the day... Those who are in the light, those who understand, be sober. And here's what we're to do. Putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Big three right there. Be serious and have faith, hope, and love. The big three. Those are the main things we should be concentrating on. Faith, hope, and love. If we want to be part of that resurrection. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Emmanuel. He's positive. He's positive about you and he's positive about me. He wants us there. So Paul is saying... God didn't call us to destroy us. No, no. Protestants think that if you accept Jesus, everything will be okay. And once saved, always saved, some of them. And others think that once you're saved, if you sin, you're going to hell. And, oh, it's all mixed up. But they try to scare you into heaven by preaching hell, fire, and brimstone, some of them. Scare the hell out of you, if you will. Scare the heaven into you, put it that way. So they look upon God as a monster who's going to get you for that, a lot of them. You better not do that, God's going to get you for that. Is that God's attitude and approach? That isn't the God we worship. He has not appointed us to wrath. He has sanctified us and set us aside for salvation through His laws and commandments. He's positive about it. He intends to save us. 
We will never, ever have him depart from us, he tells us in Corinthians. He will always be with us. He will never forsake us. The only danger is if we forsake him. That's the only danger. And Satan would have us forsake him in any way he can influence us to do so. But God's attitude is not one of sitting back and saying, okay, I called them, but if they screw up, they're out. It's not his attitude at all. He is doing everything within his power as God to save us. Now, you look at the world today, and it is an absolute total mess. Ungodly and satanic through and through. And yet God says he is going to set his hand, and all Israel shall be saved. That's hundreds and hundreds of millions of people that are in this hot mess that the world is today that are going to be saved. Now, if God can save those, can He not save you? He called you out of those. We were, at one time, one of those. And He called us out now to give us special attention, special help, that we might be in His kingdom. So He hasn't appointed us to wrath at all. He's appointed us to be the leaders of Israel in the world tomorrow as kings and priests with Christ ruling a thousand years. Do we get that? We should not be in a hope against hope mode. We need to be realistic about our selfishness and our carnal nature, but we need to grasp that God is able to save us from ourselves and from the devil. He's able to do that if we enlist his help. And he is there, ready to call us friends, ready to save us. Be encouraged, be strengthened, and do your part. That's all Paul is saying. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Emmanuel. That's what he's appointed us to become. And he has great hope that we will be there. And he will do his part to get us there. Who died for us. That's how far he went to get us there. That whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Those who have died, that he's already been talking about, are asleep in the eternal. And he says, precious in his sight is the death of his saints. Every one of God's faithful people that dies, God gives a grateful, thankful sigh. And it is a great feeling that the Father and the Son have that one dies faithful. Now, when someone dies faithful, we take some hope that they'll be in the resurrection. But at the same time, we have a sadness and a mourning about us because we will miss that person. But at the same time, we have to understand that they're coming out of the ground again. They'll be back. 
and they'll rise to meet Christ in the air and be ever with Him. So we comfort ourselves together and edify one another even as also you do. Our loved ones are coming back. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the eternal and admonish you. So he says also, while I'm at it, uh, you need to get to know those in the ministry that are laboring among you and are over you in the eternal and who admonish you, who correct you, who inspire and encourage you. Uh, Hebrews puts it, uh, those who obey those who have the rule over you. Some try to say that rule doesn't mean rule, but you can't do a thing with the word obey just before that. You're supposed to obey those who have whatever that word rule means over you. God has put the ministry here to do what? What's the ministry for? Is it to check your cupboards and your bathroom and your bedroom and your kitchen day in and day out and be sure everything's going right? No. They're here to help you be helpers of your joy, to inspire, encourage, teach, guide, and lead you toward the kingdom of God. That's what he says about the ministry there in First Thessalonians, I mean in First Corinthians. And to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. That is not the normal human approach. The normal human approach is to try to find fault with them, to look down upon them, and try to show that they really aren't qualified for the God job God gave them for. That's what people by nature do. No one as a human being wants to be told what to do, or when to do it, or how to go about it, because we are vain and egocentric and selfish and self-righteous. And therefore, we don't want any man telling us what we should do. It is the nature of man to resent that. It is the nature of man to resent God. That's what Jeremiah 17.9 tells us. That by nature, we are evil to the core. And the only thing that we can do to get beyond that deceitful and desperately wicked approach is through the Spirit of God. And we must call out on Him to give us His Spirit and to come to the point where we're humble and meek and ready to receive instruction. Guidance, correction, instead of pushing it away or ignoring it or trying to find fault with those who are giving it. You know, he says every high priest of men has difficulties. It is easy to despise men. But he also says, if you despise those whom I've sent, you despise me. So if you despise the ministry, you despise God. He says that in so many words. That's why he wasn't too easy on Miriam and Aaron when they despised Moses. And says, we're just as good as you is. No. 
leprosy gave them a, a little different lesson there. So to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and to be at peace among yourselves. So we are to look to the ministry to guide and to lead and to help us, and we're supposed to be peaceful among ourselves. Didn't James address that? Whence come wars and fighting among you? I think I'll flip back there for a moment. James, I believe it's four I want. From whence come wars and fightings among you? He's talking to the church here. Those called out. Come they not from here, even of your lusts that war in your members. It's your own problems, your own difficulties that cause the trouble among brethren. You lust and have not. In other words, you want things, but you don't get them. You don't get what you want. You kill and desire to have. Well, we don't physically kill each other much, but we certainly destroy each other spiritually, which is the same thing. And desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you don't go to God and ask Him in the right attitude of humility and meekness to give you the gifts that you need. You ask and receive not because you ask with the wrong attitude and in the wrong frame of mind to get what you want. As he says, that you may consume it upon your desires. Then he calls us adulterers and adulteresses. Know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whoever is a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And on down in verse 6, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So submit to God and draw near to God. And these wars and fightings that are among us will go away. Humility and meekness lead to peace. Ego and self-centeredness lead to strife and trouble between people. So he's exhorting us here to love one another and be at peace among ourselves. That is, put aside our own personal vanity and ego and selfishness and self-righteousness and accept each other as the children of God. Why would we criticize God's kids? You know what? You never liked it when people criticized your kids, did you? Now, you may have known what the little rapscallions were about. And you could see their faults and their problems. But you never did like it when someone else said, That is one little brat. Oh, how can you stand to live with your own kids? That didn't go over very well with you. Because it's part of your empirical self. Now, if God has children, He looks upon favor, His children with favor, and loves them. And He doesn't like it one bit when you criticize His children. He really doesn't. Be at peace among yourselves. Do we always have to win the argument? 
Do we always have to be right? Does the other person always have to be wrong? You know, there's something wrong with everyone here. There's something wrong with every one of us. And probably more than just something. There are some things wrong with every one of us as we struggle to be what we ought to be. So is the pot going to call the kettle black? Huh? Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. Comfort the feeble-minded. We're all getting more that way. (laughs) Comfort the feeble-minded. Support the weak. And be patient toward all men. Coming to have peace with means you're patient toward. Have patience. They're the children of God. God is working with them. God knows all their faults and all their problems. You realize that? God knows every fault and every problem of everyone here. So you don't need to point it out to Him or to the devil or to each other. God knows. He knows every one of us and He ponders our heart. So why do we question the motives of others? Be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil to any man. Somebody got a bad attitude at you, don't have one back at them. Don't render evil to evil. But ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore. We are to be in a thankful, rejoicing mood and attitude And if we're not, we need to be working toward it. Not settling back in our negativity and our frustration and difficulty and feel sorry for ourselves. No. Rejoice evermore. If you ain't, then get on it, (laughs) is what he's saying. That's part of overcoming, to be thankful and rejoicing as opposed to feeling sorry for oneself and feeling sorry for somebody else because they're such a sinner. Pray without ceasing. We should always be close to God and able to pray at any moment. Uh, It doesn't mean that you pray 24 hours a day. You'll rear in somebody if you're too much into that. But what it means is we should be constantly, regularly in touch with God. In everything give thanks, thanks and rejoicing. For this is the will of God in Christ Emmanuel concerning you. So he underlines it there. Rejoice and be thankful, for that's God's will for you. How do you combine negativity and hate and accusations with rejoicing and being thankful? You can't. Now, Paul started out in chapter 4 telling us what we need to do in order to be in the first resurrection. And he goes on in chapter 5 and tells us, you're walking in the light, not in darkness, and here's what you need to be and do if you want to be in that resurrection. 
And God's all for you. He didn't appoint you to wrath. He appointed you to be in it. Now, here's what you need to do. Rejoice and be thankful. Be patient with each other. And be constantly in touch with God in prayer. In everything give thanks, for this is His will toward you. Quench not the Spirit. How do you quench it? By letting your human mind go where your human mind wants to go. And that stifles, it quenches, it slows down the Spirit of God working in you because you're responding to Satan and self, not to God. You would be looking up with rejoicing and thankfulness if you were in the right attitude, and then the Spirit of God can flow through you and out to others. But if you've got other attitudes, it can't do it. It's quenched, stifled. Despise not preachings, which we sometimes tend to do. Now you're stepping on toes. You done quit preaching and started meddling. We got all of our sayings about that kind of thing uh, because we tend to despise sometimes. So he then says, prove all things and hold fast that which is good. So we're supposed to be proving and doing and abstain from all forms of evil. And that is the proper translation there. Sometimes you can be doing something that appears to somebody else evil, but it's not a form of evil what you're doing necessarily. But others might think it looks like evil. And then they let their evil imagination get to them. And then they begin to become impatient and start putting you down. And suddenly they're not in a thankful, praiseworthy attitude and are quenching the Spirit of God and accepting the Spirit of Satan. And the very God of peace, God is peace, and He wants us to be at peace with one another sanctify you wholly, completely set you apart. Not partially, but completely. Don't knock your cup over while you're at it. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ or Emmanuel. So here he goes right back to what he's talking about, about the resurrection. But if you'll do these things, you're going to be there spirit, mind, body, and soul, when he returns and makes you immortal. Faithful is he that calls you, who also will do it. He has it in mind. It's his purpose to get you to that first resurrection. Because you have been called out and sanctified. Now, don't resist him. That's what quenching the Spirit does. It's resisting what He's trying to accomplish in you. When we go to Satan, when we go to the world, when we allow our human nature to control us, then we're resisting what He's trying to do. Well, why would we resist God? Well, you'd think we wouldn't. But our nature is there, which is contrary to God. Human nature is absolutely contrary to God in and of itself. 
And the only way that you can get in step with God is through His Holy Spirit. You cannot, on your own, through willpower, overcome yourself. Here, here a little, there a little, maybe. People do. I mean, people in the world overcome some problems sometimes. But you cannot work salvation in yourself. You have to submit to God and trust Him and look to Him and accept that He is going to save you from the world and yourself. And then get to work making it happen. Now, am I going to finish this or not? Uh, Let's go to Matthew 24. He, Christ Himself, talks about some of these things that Paul just visited with us about. He talks here about the gospel being preached around the world and how things are going to get tough and uh, that fleeing to a place of safety will be difficult. And then in verse 21, there'll be for then, at the, at the time that we go to safety and the three and a half years of tribulation begins, then shall be great tribulation, probably beginning the same day we flee, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, or ever shall be. There's going to be more trouble, more strife, more difficulty, more violence than even before Noah. It's going to be worse than it's ever been starting that day. And if that wasn't cut short, no flesh would be saved alive. Now let's go on down uh, to verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now we know at the end of those three and a half years, 1260 days, 42 months, the two witnesses are going to be killed and the resurrection of the dead comes three days later. So, also immediately after that tribulation, right after the first resurrection, in other words, Will the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and, the, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and all tribes of the earth will mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So it's immediately after the tribulation that he comes in great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So he's telling us the same thing here that Paul told us in 1 Thessalonians 4. That there will be the great sound of a trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and those who remain alive, some of us, will rise to meet him. right at the end of the tribulation. And then's when the day of the Lord begins. The three and a half years of tribulation is Satan's anger at the world. The seven last plagues during that last year is the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord includes in a larger sense all of it. Because he begins working with his church, he will suddenly come to his temple ahead of that. So it's his work all the way through. But he allows Satan to take charge during that three and a half years, which is the times of the Gentiles. 
for 42 months. And it will be a Gentile-ruled world. Israel will be in captivity, and the Gentiles will rule and create great tribulation. And then when he comes and takes his bride back to marry her, at the feast pictured by the Feast of Trumpets today, the seven last plagues will be turned loose on the earth. And if that year were not cut short, there would be no flesh saved alive. So it begins with the tribulation, when the church goes to safety and Satan comes down to destroy the remnant of her seed. End of chapter 12 of Revelation. So he says, Learn a parable of the fig tree, verse 32, when his branch is yet tender and puts forth his leaves, so like it wise you, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the door. Isn't that what Paul told us? You're not of the night, you're of the light. You can see. We're not supposed to be in darkness. We're supposed to know. And he says, I tell you, this generation that he's speaking of here, the last generation of those called, will not pass till all these things be fulfilled. He says, heaven and earth before me are going to pass away, but my word shall not pass away. He says, of that day and hour, doesn't say we won't know the season, doesn't say we won't know the year. We're to be in the light. We're to, lo- to walk in the light, not in darkness. It is not to come upon us as a thief in the night. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. It'll catch them in the darkness like a thief in the night, and they'll be living as they're living, not paying any attention to God, which is as it was in the days of Noah. Where they were eating and drinking and giving in marriage and so on, until the day that Noah entered the ark and the rain started. And they didn't know till the flood came. And so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. They're not going to be expecting it. They're going to have the rule of the Gentiles with the beast and the false prophet who have given them a way to buy and sell and to make money, and they're going to be going along as if nothing is happening. Satan will be ruling the world, and the Gentiles will be ruling under Satan, and it will appear that the millennium is here. There will be signs and wonders. Israel will be out of their way. The Gentiles generally hate Israelites today. That is, the peoples of Western Europe and America and Canada and Australia. They hate us. We're the great Satan to the whole Muslim world. And they will rejoice when America is destroyed and the other nations of Israel. And they'll think that the rule of the kingdom of God has come. They're still going to have modern communications... The internet and so on may go down for a while as America is taken captive in Israel, but that stuff's all going to be restored. When the two witnesses are killed, they're going to have a worldwide party. And without modern communications, you can't have a worldwide party and send gifts one to another. So all these things are going to still be here under Satan 
and the Gentiles ruled for 42 months or 1260 days, three and a half years. And they're going to rejoice when God's two preachers are killed. And then when they're raised up three days later, they're going to stand back and say, Oh my God, because there He will be in the clouds in His glory. And then they're going to die, most of them. And finally, they're going to say, That really is my God. Not in derision and hate, you know, it doesn't take much of a surprise for people to this today to say, Oh, my God. It's right on their lips. One of the first things people will say if they get surprised by something. Well, they're going to be surprised, all right. And they may say it in derision. But after they're killed in the seven last plagues and come up in the second resurrection, then they'll be tend to say with fervency and reverence and worship, Oh, that's my God. It'll be different at that time. So, he says, some will go and some will be left behind. Verse 42, watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord does come. Don't know the day or the hour. We may know the, uh, uh, what hour. We may know the season. Probably know the year. I think we already do know that by now. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. If the world were just awake and alert and alive and in the light, it wouldn't come on them in darkness. So he tells us, don't be that way, just like Paul did. Paul was actually quoting this. Therefore be you also ready... For in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man comes. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord has made ruler over his household to give him food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. He's endured. He's still working. He's still overcoming and growing if he hasn't died. And that's the one that he's looking for. But one that gets an attitude and says, ah, he delays his coming and begins to live like the world and be drunk and so on. Uh, no, that's not going to work because that's a hypocrite and there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now let's notice chapter 25 in this because it's all talking about this same period of time when Christ returns. So he goes on and likens the kingdom of heaven to ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. Now, Paul calls us in various scriptures virgins. He called the highly immoral, corrupt people who had been converted in Corinth chaste virgins before the eternal. So, if we're called into the church, we're to be spiritually as virgins, not connected to the world and committing spiritual fornication with the world or adultery, but to be separate from it and virgins before Christ, having all of our sins forgiven and washed away so that we have no past. 
That's what a physical virgin is, a girl who has, or a man who has no past. It's as if they never done it, to use bad grammar. So God washes it all away and considers them as virgins before him. So this is talking about church members, those who have been forgiven of their spiritual adultery and fornication with the devil. But of them, some were wise and some were foolish. They were foolish, took their lamps, and didn't have enough of the Holy Spirit with them. And the wise took the Spirit in their vessels with their lamps. And while the bridegroom tarried, read Song of Songs, they all slumbered and slept. All went to sleep. So there we were, lackadaisical, spiritually sleepwalking, and God vomited us out in Revelation 3. All slumbered and slept. None of us were what we should have been. Not me, not you, none of us. Okay? Don't exception yourself. They all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Wake up! Behold, the bridegroom comes, go you out to meet him. Read Isaiah 51 and 52. Wake up! Three times. Who's going to be saying that? Go back to Isaiah 40 and come forward and you'll find out. A cry made. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their laps. Everybody said, oh, what's going on here? There's a cry made. Ten percent are going to respond to the cry and come to help do God's work at the end. The other ninety percent will not. Well, now, how does this fit that? Let's go on. Cry was made. Everybody said, oh, something's going on. Something's happening. And the foolish said to the wise... Give us of your spirit, your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered and said, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go you rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. Now who's going to be giving out the oil? Go to Zechariah 4, and you will find that Zerubbabel and Joshua, the two witnesses, are going to be feeding oil into all seven lamps. They're the ones that will have the Spirit of God and be able to disseminate the truth and the Spirit of God to others. They're the only ones who will be preaching it correctly at the end. The only ones. All these other preachers in the church out there aren't going to be doing it. Just those, and maybe those few ministers who repent and come and are with them and working with them. It's the only place that's going to be available on earth those are the ones you have to go to. They're the ones God is working through. No one else. Get it? They feed all seven churches. Zechariah 4 is part of the Bible. Nobody else. You can't get it anywhere else. The church is very exclusive, and so are those whom God will work with at the end. No one else. That's where you have to go. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, 
And they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the others, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Truly I say to you, I don't know you. That would be a bad place to be. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man comes. Now he goes on with some other analogies, which I don't have time to get to. But I want to coordinate a little bit here. Matthew 25 with some other scripture. Now, I'll go over this quickly because you already know it. You can go to Isaiah 6 and verse 13. And it says, how many will be there? And he says, one-tenth will return. And Haggai says a remnant, which is one-tenth. We can show that and have. So one-tenth of those that were in the church, called at this end time, will return to do the final work of God with the two witnesses. Haggai and Zechariah, the whole story there. So 10%. Well, that's not anywhere near 50%, is it? So what, why, why does he use that analogy of five wise and five foolish? Now, some are going to heed the warning given there in Matthew 25 and go to them that have and receive. Some will not. So 10% we know are going to respond right away. They have enough oil in their lamp that they put it together, they see what's happening, and they go there to help. Now, let's go to Zechariah 13. I've mentioned this before, but I think this is a good time to look at it. Uh, Zechariah 13, he talks about a fountain opening in the house of David to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. God is going to quit frowning on the church. He's going to turn His face to it. And He's going to open a fountain of living water, true doctrine, from His two servants and those who follow with them to get rid of sin and uncleanness. So, the idols will be put out, and so on. And we go on down to verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd... Not against Satan's shepherd, God's shepherd. And against the man that is my fellow, says the Eternal of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. And I will turn my hand upon the little ones. Now, has somebody smitten the shepherd that God called here in the end time? I mentioned yesterday that I think he was murdered, and I do believe he was based on Isaiah, and based on this, and based on other scriptures about the leaders of Israel being killed, both physical and spiritual Israel. Have we seen a shepherd smitten or die? Micah 4 tells us that our king, our counselor, is dead. And that we are to go to a wilderness place, and there we will be redeemed from destruction. So yes, our king and our counselor, Herbert Armstrong, is dead. That's what he's talking about here. Smite my shepherd, he that is my fellow, and I will turn my hand upon the little ones. 
Isn't that what Revelation 3 says? He will vomit out or turn his hand against and turn his away, face away from the little ones, the sheep of that shepherd. And where are they going to go? Ten percent will come to build the temple in Jerusalem. The rest are going into the Great Tribulation. They will not be saved out of it. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, says Eternal, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, spiritually speaking, and physically speaking, because once they go into the tribulation, if they keep the Sabbath, the beast and the false prophet will kill them. And Satan knows who they are. So it'll be no problem. It's not talking about the world here. It's talking about God's shepherd and his sheep. Two-thirds of them are going to die. And therein shall be, they'll cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. You have to heat gold ore and silver ore in order to refine it, to get it to be pure. And he is going to heat people up in the tribulation. And they'll call on his name, and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people, and they shall say, the Lord is my God. That doesn't mean that they won't die before the tribulation is over. But it means that they will live spiritually through that and be part of the first resurrection. So he says, 10% will respond initially and come and do my work. Another third, that's 33 and a third percent, if you divide it by a third exactly. Add the 10% who already responded, and you've got 43 and a third percent. Now that's getting close to that half of Matthew 25. And I don't think he means specifically exactly one half, five will and five won't. He's giving an analogy. He's giving a parable. He's giving some insight into the kingdom of God that of those who were considered virgins, about half are going to make it. And if you get the 10% and then the a third that goes into the tribulation and survive spiritually, you've got nearly half. So I think the numbers come together, and we can better understand Matthew 25, which is a general prophecy, but he gets more specific with other prophecies. And even when he says in Ezekiel 5 that both spiritual and physical Israel will be reduced by famine and tribulation, or by famine and pestilence, by the sword and by captivity, even then he tells Ezekiel, reach in and throw some more in the fire. So it's actually less than one-third that are left. And it may be less than the five virgins that are left, because those other scriptures all fit together with it to show that somewhere between 40 and 50 percent of those God called are ultimately going to be part of the first fruits. Those called here at the end. I don't know about those in the days of the apostles and those in the Old Testament, how many of them are there. But we do know that it is going to be 
144,000 total. I guess I'm probably running out of time, and I don't have time to get into all that today. But we've already seen in Revelation 7 and Revelation 14 that there are 144,000 in the first resurrection. That is all. Uh, If you combine chapter 7 and chapter 14, you will see there that combined, they indicate that the great multitude is those who survive and go on into the millennium and even may include those who go into the great white throne judgment at the second resurrection. But the first fruits entirely are 144,000. These are the first fruits. That's all. No more. No less. And when he says, I'll show you the bride there in Revelation 21, it has 12 foundations, it has 12 apostles, it has 12 tribes, and the walls are 144 cubits high. All the dimensions of 144,000 laid out there in the holy city, and that is speaking of the bride. So that's all that are in the first resurrection. You have been called to a very, very special calling. And in the series that I am in, apart from the Day of Trumpets, you're going to see even more. And I hope it shakes you to your foundation to realize where you need to be and what you need to be doing. Now, I'm going to close, then, in 1 Corinthians 15. We went through the context of 1 Thessalonians 4, so I won't take the time here, for sake of time, to go back over that. But Paul actually reiterates some of it here, talking about the church of God and how Christ was risen. And if in this life only, verse 19, we have a hope, then we're of all men most miserable because... Here we are striving and working to overcome and overcoming so that we don't die eternally. Uh, He says everybody dies just like Adam did. But in Christ shall all be made alive, verse 22. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruit, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Those are the first fruits of Revelation 14. And then he says that flesh and blood can't be there, that there has to come a change. Verse 49, as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Very, very encouraging here. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It just isn't up to snuff. What we are as best we can be as humans, cannot be in the kingdom of God. He's just not going to have any humans there, okay? (coughs) Humans are made subject to sin. They're made subject to vanity and ego and selfishness. And they just can't be in the kingdom of God. That's bottom line. (coughs) Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. We're corrupt. We can't be there because God is incorruptible. And if we're corruptible, which we are, then we can't be incorruptible. Behold, 
I show you a mystery. We shall not all be dead, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. You never ever have to worry about death again. Because you're now incorruptible, both in body and in character, and cannot be corrupted evermore. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? It was temporary. Now we've risen above it and gone beyond it, and it will never ever have an effect on us again. He says that of his bride there in Revelation 21. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more death is overcome. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Emmanuel. He has not appointed us to wrath, brethren. He has appointed us to peace and to love and to faith and to hope. And someday, faith and hope will go away. Two of the big three will go away. You won't need them anymore. All that will remain is love. Faith is in things we can't see. Then we will see them. So we no longer need faith. Hope is for something in the future. Then we will not need hope because the future has arrived. The only thing that will remain is what? God. And you'll be God. And what is God? God is love. Love God. Love one another. And let's see each other in the first resurrection.